0: With me today is Hugh Williams, Distinguished Fellow for the Centre for Business Analytics here at Melbourne Business School. Since leaving his hometown of Melbourne and work in academia for Silicon Valley over 10 years ago, Dr. Williams has served in senior roles at eBay, Microsoft, Tinder, Pivotal, and most recently as VP of Engineering and Product at the Google, which saw him lead Google Maps worldwide. Hugh I understand you've been living in Melbourne now since about December of last year and prior to that you were in Silicon Valley. What can you tell us about living in Silicon Valley compared to Melbourne?
1: Oh thanks Jen. Obviously I'm, I'm originally from uh, from Melbourne but you're right I've been living uh, overseas for the last uh, 12 or 13, 13 years and uh, and since I think it was 2009 uh, we we lived in you know what's known as the Silicon Valley right in the heart of that um, look honestly I think on a uh, on a, a dodgy Melbourne spring day the biggest difference in my mind is the weather <laughs> I mean I certainly you know I certainly miss that beautiful northern California uh, winter where you know even in uh, the deepest darkest parts of winter you can wear a t-shirt so <laughs> so certainly miss that but um but it's also I guess a uh, a world away in many other ways um, as, a, as a place. Um, you know, there are quite a few uh, tech companies that exist outside of the Silicon Valley, but the vast majority of the tech companies that, that you and I know and love are in the Silicon Valley. Um, from the, the old school companies, you know, the Silicon Valley sort of grew out of companies like IBM setting up their headquarters there. Um, so, it grow, you know, it's from, from that vintage of company, you know, right through to you know the companies that um, are some of the most valuable companies in the world today. So, Facebook's right in the middle of the Silicon Valley. Uh, so is Google, um, and then a lot of the emerging companies. You know, the um, you know Tw- Twitter is based in San Francisco, which is you know really only a forty minute drive from the heart of the Silicon Valley, and uh, you know lots of companies, Airbnb, Uber, you know, all the companies that you that you'd think of are, are situated there.
0: And do you think um, a place like Melbourne could attract companies to create its own sort of innovative hub in that way?
1: I would like to think so. And and I guess as, you know, an expat moving back home, uh, you know, I'd love to see that happen. You know, I'd love to see more interesting things happening in Melbourne for for technologists and and for, you know, for all the things that that, that sit around it. But I, I think we've got a lot of work to do to get there. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the fundamental things that exists in the Silicon Valley is is the funding, mm-hmm. um, and in particular the appetite for deep growth investment. So, you know, Silicon Valley investors are prepared to invest enormous sums of money um, for you know no return over a very long period just to sustain growth that ultimately builds you know large large companies that are successful. So, you know, Amazon's not. Um, you know, it has its search part. In uh, search, um, uh, search engine team is based in in the Valley, but you know, by and large, it's based in Seattle. But you know, there's an example of a company that's never turned a profit. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so since the mid 90s, you know, they've taken every cent that they've generated and poured that and more back into growing the company. Um, you know, with a with an ambition to to dominate the world. Uh, yes. And. And I think you know that kind of mentality of you know growth at all costs to build you know large businesses that dominate categories is a very sort of Silicon Valley way of thinking. And I think you know for Melbourne to get a piece of that pie, you know Melbourne would have to think similarly. And you know that's a very different way to think, and it requires very very deep pockets.
0: Tell us a bit about what you were doing in your time at Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, sure. So. Um, so we moved there in 2009, and uh, I took a job uh, at eBay um, when eBay was really at the lowest of its lows. Um, and I can tell you that I can tell you that story later on. But uh, you know, I took a job running their uh, search team, um, and you know the the way that buyers get connected to sellers primarily on eBay is through searching. So I was lucky enough to run the team that that, uh, that looked after search, and that job you know started off as a relatively sensibly scoped relatively small job and then just and then just grew like crazy so you know by the end of my time at ebay four or five years later you know i was managing a team of well over a thousand people um, that build you know most of the things that you that you would think about as a user that are ebay so everything from you know platform pieces that that uh, run, in, run in the data centers that you know, support all of the, the infrastructure right up to things like the homepage, the search engine, the recommendation algorithms, the marketing algorithms, all those kinds of things. So that was a, that was a pretty fun job. Um, I, I left eBay uh, to run my own tech team. So if you like, you know, I was kind of the second in charge of the tech team at eBay. I, I left eBay to uh, work at a company called Pivotal where I uh, had the chance to run the whole of the tech team. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, left Pivotal uh, and then thought about doing a, a startup with a friend of mine, another good story I can tell you, um, but it wound up working at Tinder, the dating app, um, actually working for the guy that uh, I was going to do the startup with, um, and then uh, he was unceremoniously fired from, from Tinder, I can tell you that story too, and uh, so I, I decided I'd, I'd leave, and uh, and then I found myself uh, at Google running uh, Google Maps, which was pretty interesting, so I had the I had the great privilege of running uh, the Google Maps team for Google for the last couple of years. And then uh, after that, we, uh, we moved back here.
0: What else could you tell us that's a bit different about living and working in Silicon Valley?
1: I think the fundamental thing that's different about the Silicon Valley is that people just go incredibly hard after uh, a very ambitious goal. You know, when I was at um, Google and Microsoft, we used to talk about these goals as BHAGs, which stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. Mm-hmm. Right? And those companies, it's just in the culture to set ridiculously hard, world-dominating goals at all times. And, you know, you see it in companies like SpaceX, you know, where Elon Musk has sort of said, oh, we're going to go to, we're going to Mars by some date. And you, sort of, you look at that and you say, okay, so he's never put a person inside his rocket. His rockets keep blowing up, yet he's saying we're going to get to Mars within a few years. But that's just how these companies think. right? And so that's what happens inside Google. That's what happens inside Microsoft you know, is that they're incredibly ambitious companies that just want to change the world and disrupt themselves. And I think that is so fundamentally different to how the majority of companies think in Australia. I mean, I think the majority of companies in Australia, you know, work hard and diligently, um, but, you know, think, very, think, think about, you know, returning a dividend to their shareholders this year. Um, you know, think about uh, making sure they make a, a, a good dent in the results for the quarter. Um, and this is just not how... You know, say, a Google thinks. I mean, Google, Google is just not concerned about that at all. What they're concerned about is building, you know, incredible fundamental new value, and they believe that those numbers will look after themselves if they do that. So, for example, Google never gives any forward guidance about its earning results. It just kind of is what it is, and we're just working really hard. Yeah. Right? And that's sort of the antithesis of how companies work in Australia. You know, everybody's always asking, are you going to pay a dividend? Right? which is a very short-term question to ask. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley companies think about building uh, you know, very successful, very large, very ambitious, very sustained businesses over the long haul. And I think that's just a fundamentally different way, of, different way of thinking and fundamentally a much more exciting way of thinking. I mean, you can imagine what it's like being inside of Google, mm-hmm. whereas the last couple of years, I mean, you're surrounded by other executive leaders who are just sort of shooting for Mars. Yeah. Right, like everybody's talking about this incredibly ambitious thing that they want to do, yeah. and they're giving you this look that that's what they're going to do, right? And of course, some miss, and some it takes longer than they thought it would, um, but but you can't fault you can't fault the ambition and the goals. And so I think that's incredibly invigorating to be in an environment like that, and the whole of the Silicon Valley is like that. Like you go to you go to a party on a Saturday night. And you meet people who are just ridiculously ambitious, not personally, but in in what they're trying to achieve. And everybody's telling you a story about how they're going to completely change an industry, Mm -hmm. how they're going to invent a new industry, how Mm -hmm. they're going to create an entirely new category. So it's an incredibly interesting place to be.
0: How do you think organisations like this keep themselves fresh, like they put the goal there, but presumably they've got some arms that are having to keep... The fundamentals sticking over?
1: I, I think, Jen, there's a couple of really important points in, in your question. I think the first one is sort of how do you disrupt yourself? Mm. Right? And that's the thing that Kodak failed to do. I think the best examples of self disruption, if you like, that I've seen are where uh, the company sets up a small group and shields that group from the main company and allows that company to really innovate within the broad framework of the company. I saw that personally at eBay. Um, eBay didn't have a, this is early in, in in sort of the emergence of smartphones, it didn't have a mobile app. The wrong way to build a mobile app would have been to give it to me, who was running the large web team and say build a mobile app. Um, we would have taken every feature on the website and tried to put that into the mobile app and it would have taken us three years to build it, yeah. and, it have, and it would have been a cumbersome sort of legacy, dragged down, slow, bureaucratic process. Um, instead, what our CEO did was he set up a small team, you know, 10, 15 people on the side in a different building and he said, team, build me the world's best mobile app and let me know if anybody who's not helpful comes and bothers you and I'll get them out of your way and within a year they had the best e-commerce mobile app that there was and you know they beat Amazon to the punch on that one you know within Three or four years, it was. It more of the of eBay sales were going through the mobile app than through than through the website. So it was a raging success. But the way they did it was really set up a group on the side and shield that group and let them go and do their best work. There comes a point where you've got to sort of fold that group back into the main team. And I think that's an art. And I don't think we did a great job of that at eBay. Um, but I think I think that's how you go about disruption. You don't expect the team that's you know that's that's. Trying to deliver the dollars, hit the quarter has been, you know, doing the same things well year for year, um, and has been rewarded for it to be able to disrupt itself. I think you have to find a new vehicle to go and do that. Others do it through acquisition. I think that's mm. another interesting way, though, though a fairly fraught way. Um, but I think you know that's 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 another way to do it. Um, You've also in your question sort of asked about, um, you know, how do you think about getting. You know, getting an innovative culture. When the reality is, you know, there's got to be part of the company that's just delivering the results, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Google is a good case study of that. I mean, the vast majority of Google's income comes from advertising, right? And you know, every piece of important work that that team does funds everything else that the company is doing. And so, you want that team focused on delivering a great ad product, listening to customers. The last thing you really want is that team sort of getting distracted and doing you know, disruptive things. I mean, you want that machine to run, you want that machine to run well. And I think there are certain people who thrive in that kind of environment. Um, the leader of ads is a, is a great guy and, and you know, he loves that culture. He likes being at the center of the company where the money is generated. You know, he likes producing billions and billions of dollars and doing that with excellence. And I think he attracts a set of people who really enjoy being part of that machine. Whether those people would thrive in a more sort of disruptive environment, I think is an open question, um, but they certainly do thrive within, within that environment. So I think there's a, you know, in a large company, there's, there's different roles for different people, um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not to be um, sneezed at being somebody who's a senior person on an established team that really is driving the profitability of the company.
0: So it really is about thinking about your company almost as a series of smaller companies that are well integrated, uh, however, able to be able to fulfill a particular purpose without having to get encumbered by other pieces. And also in some way, bring that all back together as a whole. So not too siloed as you suggested, where you have to integrate teams back in again.
1: Yeah, and I think that Amazon's the company that's done that the best and is famous for doing it. I mean, everybody who works at Amazon tells you stories of how it feels like hundreds of very small companies that are very autonomous and they just go and do their best work on, you know, their part of Amazon in a really, you know, aggressive, audacious kind of way. And there really is no sort of layer that sits on top and worries about the integration of that. They just assume if you have hundreds of small teams with the right goals who are very ambitious, it'll kind of work out in the end. And I think Amazon is, you know, is the story of that being true.
0: So tell us now, you've introduced that idea of um, you know, data, data and analytics being central to every business. So I think we hear and read a lot about that in all sorts of media outlets now. What do you see is uh, happening in that world and and what's essential to that for the future for business do you think that every business needs to really be thinking about this now
1: well I think that I think that fundamentally most modern businesses are data businesses Right. so if you think about um, let's pick a let's pick a business that's 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 you know not today thought of as a data business so let's pick a car company for example right what What users of their cars are doing is they're contributing all sorts of information about how those cars are used, when they're used, why they're used, um, all sorts of information about how roads are used, how people travel, um, how people have accidents, how people have near misses. I mean, these cars are, you know, these cars are traveling around the real world, operating in the real world, and they're very capable of collecting data about that whole experience. And of course, that data is very, very valuable. I mean, it's very, very valuable to that car company because that car company could then design cars that, you know, have less collisions, have fewer near misses, um, offer the features that the users want based on, on you know mm-hmm. how the users use the car, um, fix problems that the car has. You know, so that you know, there's there's probably things about the car that are less intuitive that users don't use correctly, and you know, from the data you can understand how that car's you know, not designed in the way it should be, and you can continuously improve that car. And so you know, they're a very valuable data resource for the, the car company to build a better car and innovate on behalf of their users. And of course, the data is valuable in many other ways. So if I, was a, if I was the local government, I'd be really excited about having the car company's car data mm. right? because I know how the roads are used, when they're used, when they're bottlenecked,
0: so they're actually collecting that data from the cars as a well. They uh, should be, use, you know. So I, this is again, bad.
1: like if you go and look at a company like Tesla, um, that you know is famous for its its its, its electric cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the very fundamental things that Tesla did when they when they you know when they built that car was instrument the car so that it collects data about absolutely everything, mm-hmm. right? So that car is has its own. Um, uh, you know, 4G connection, so or LTE connection, so it can it can it can talk via the mobile phone network back to Tesla, and it's sending huge amounts of data back about the car to Tesla, and Tesla of course is using that data to understand how the cars are used and how roads are used, and using that to continually improve their cars. And I don't think that you know most other car companies think like that, yeah. but clearly, if they did, they'd have a valuable resource to improve their cars and also a very valuable resource to help the community you know improve improve everything about about transportation mm-hmm. um tesla's so interesting too you know i was lucky enough to own one of their model s cars when i uh when i lived in the valley and um you, here's a here's a true story so i i uh, was having some trouble with the car um the tire pressure sensor kept going off and saying you know your tire is flat and i'd go and look at the tire and I'd connect up, you know, connect up the, the compressor and it'd say that the tire was fine. So I sort of figured, oh, it must be the, you know, it must be the sensor that mm-hmm. says that, you know, that there's something wrong with the tire, that, that's actually faulty. So I called up Tesla on the phone. Um, they asked me a couple of simple questions to identify it was me. And then the guy said, I'll log into your car and take a look. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm talking to a guy on the phone and he's logged into my car, mm-hmm. you know, and He's inspecting my car, and, and he said, "Oh, yeah, I saw that. That I can see that that went on when you were driving home on Thursday night. Um, you know, I was on for a couple of minutes there. Hey, I'll just reset it for you. Okay, it's uh, it's reset now. You know, let me let me know if you have any further problems." And and so you know that the, the car, sure, it's a piece of hardware, but the software in in it is incredible, yeah. um, and they're able to do things like that that are just so far beyond I think how how most typical companies you know think about. Um, what they're building and how they do it but but I think you know talked about car companies we could have picked any example yeah, you know yeah. we could have picked farming we could have picked insurance I mean, you could pick anything yeah. and I think I can make an argument that if they collected more data yeah. and thought about that data then that would be their most valuable asset you know mm-hmm. and that would be the asset that would ultimately give them give them an advantage and enable them to, you know, deliver the best possible experience to their users. So I think that's, you know, I really do think that's the future.
0: And how do you think businesses go about getting ready to collect data? I mean, everybody's excited about...
1: Data. I think that's right, Jan. I mean, I think there are, you know, there's a sort of a series of stages of growth you go through th- until you reach kind of enlightenment around data. Yeah. Um, and look, I, I, I think fundamentally the first one is that you have to believe that data is going to be your most important asset.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: once yeah. you believe that, then you can bring to the company a culture that, you know, the, the, the data is 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 the value that the company has. And then from there you can start to sort of slowly introduce the company to what I'd call instrumenting everything. So you know making sure that you collect every piece of data from every interaction that everything that exists within your company and store that safely somewhere in its in its raw form. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that's the, that's the first step, is to, is to just simply make sure that you collect all of the data, however hard that is, and store all that data, however expensive it is to do so, so that then you know, the, the best minds in your company can go and, and go and inspect that data, understand that data, analyze that data, and from that, you know, they, can, um, they can go and innovate on behalf of the business. So I think rule number one is instrument everything and keep all the data. Um, and so I've given the students, you know, example after example of, you know, where that, you know, where that became um, incredibly valuable. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story, actually. So um, it's a little bit earlier in my career. So I was lucky enough when I, when I moved to the U.S. With, uh, with my then pretty young family uh, to get a job at Microsoft. And I was one of the first engineers on their search engine effort, which is now known as Bing. So I think every, you know, most people have heard of Bing, even if you all use Google. Um, uh, uh, including me, sadly. Um, But I was one of the first engineers on on Bing, and uh, I was lucky enough to be the person who started the image search team there. And I was sitting around with uh, a couple of other people, really, really smart people, um, poring over image search data. And uh, Microsoft was lucky enough to have some image search data because um, prior to building their own image search engine, um, they'd used a third-party image search engine and and they'd, uh, they'd kept all the data. So anytime anybody ran a query on this third-party image search engine, uh, Microsoft would save the query and it would save the images that people clicked on. And so I was lucky enough to have this data set of you know, a couple of years of queries and clicks. And I sat down with a, a couple other people and we, we poured over this data and we we found a couple of very interesting things. So the first one was that uh, in, in web search, people uh, don't go beyond page one 70% of the time. So most people in these web search just don't, just don't paginate. But in image search, uh, to hit that 70% threshold, you had to go to about page seven. So you go, huh, okay, so people, people paginate more in image search. They'll consume more images. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know too many people who have even been to page seven in web search. So it's kind of fundamentally different. The other thing that was fundamentally different is that um, people will explore very deep in image search before they make their first click. So we found a user who queried for a butterfly, and then she paginated to page seventy-seven before she made her first click. Wow! And of course, in web search, you know, you don't even know if there is a page seventy-seven, right?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so you know, it's a very fundamentally, sort of different way of using what at the time was a very similar search engine. So if you remember back in the day, you know, image search had uh, 20 uh, image thumbnails per page and down at the bottom it had a pagination control, you right. know, just like web search. Yeah. Um, and you remember under every image they had a little bit of text, sort of a, a bit of sort of ugly URL and a little fragment of text that was kind of meaningless. But, you know, it was, it was a very sort of, it was a very sort of web search-like thing back in the day. So anyway, we're, we're sitting there um, poring over this data um, over lunch and we got talking about, um, how pagination was a barrier to people doing what they want because clearly you know if you if lots of people are paginating then you know that's that's moving the mouse and that's clicking um, mm. that's getting in the way of you actually consuming the images and so we asked the question you know well how many images then should you put on a page at that time it was 20 and we we sort of argued well maybe it should be 30, maybe it should be 40, maybe it should be 80, maybe it should be 160, and we got talking about it. And then of course, in the limit, you could argue that you shouldn't have pages at all. All So there should just be sort of an infinite number of images per page, and you should just be able to scroll and see more images. And so in that moment, very literally was born what's now known as infinite scroll on the web. So so you know, me and a couple other people were sitting around poring over the data that we were smart enough to keep, and Understanding how users use the product that we'd built, and from that we were able to sort of, you know, think through how that product could be built better. Um, so I'm really lucky at home. I've got this uh, this plaque that I can hang up on the wall that says that I'm, you know, one of the three inventors of infinite scroll. <laughs> um, but you know, for me, you know, it's a nice story. Um, but but for me, it's just a really good example of why if you keep all of your data yeah. and you and you know and you you invest in the people. Um, spending time with that data really thinking through how users use the product and and what they want to do differently then you can actually move the state of the art forward pretty quickly
0: mm. yes yeah, so you can actually you know you've got that history and you're ready to you know as you were do something with it you've got some data there and some history with it to to uh, think about where to go next and and build something useful and worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: so I don't think it matters whether you're a tech company or a non-tech company. I mean, I think if you're a bank, you're in an insurance company, you're in health, you're in transportation, whatever mm. you're in, mm. I mean you've got the opportunity to collect an enormous yeah. amount of data about how your users use your product, yeah. and then you've got the opportunity to hire people like the like the wonderful graduates that we're producing here at the business school to come in and think about that data mm. and help you really understand what the users are doing at scale and then help you sort of think through how you can how you can kind of leapfrog um, the work that, that you're doing. And I, I think that's sort of the secret source of the future really is that, um, you know, most companies are going to become data companies and most companies because they're going to become data companies are going to need the kind of graduates that we're producing here at the business school. So, so for me, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get involved here at the school is it's a chance to kind of bring Bring that Silicon Valley culture, mm. that way of thinking, um, you know, to Melbourne and share that with uh, with our students here, and hopefully, you know, that rubs off a little bit, and then they can be the people who go forward in industry and really change how we how we think about what we do here in Melbourne.
0: So I'm just uh, thinking about all that you've had to say, and is there anything um, right at our doorstep at the moment that we could expect it? some form of data analytics or some new development is is about to swing our way that might bring something new into our world. I don't know uh, whether you've been in touch with something in Melbourne that's about to come upon us or there's something fresh that way. So
1: I'd answer in a slightly different way. So I think today is a wonderful, wonderful time to be alive as a software engineer, and that's my that's my background. Right, so you can wake up today and start a company or get involved in a in a small company, and there are a plethora of tools available for you to accelerate your company without you having to go and build those things yourself. So, you know, if I think back to the beginning of my career, we had to build everything ourselves from scratch yeah. in a vacuum. Right, so you couldn't do the kinds of things that large companies do at scale because you had to build it all from scratch and you didn't have the resources to do that and that has changed so much mm-hmm. right so you can you can start a company today and you can go and buy some software to do large scale testing on user populations um, and just and just start so for example there's this product called optimizely built by a company from the silicon valley uh, and it allows you, as a as a as a company building a, a mobile app or a web app, to run large scale A/B testing. So you know you can you can put a population of your users into a test. You can say, hey, how do they behave compared to the population that's not seeing some 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 test? And then you can very quickly draw a conclusion about that and understand, you know, whether your users prefer the test over the control or not. And then you can say, hey, yeah, they love the test. You know, they like bigger buttons or you know, a more colourful site, or you know, this kind of phrasing, or whatever it is, and you can say, okay, let's go with that, and then you know, move move on with that, and and you know, even even ten or twelve years ago, the large companies were still building that kind of infrastructure. Today, you can just get it out of the box and go, and so I think, uh, you know, there's there's tools for sort of collecting data, analysing data, running experiments producing visualizations all these kinds of things are just available to you at your fingertips today if you if you if you start a company or if you find yourself in a company that's yet to become a data company so it's a really great time to be alive I think it's also true for software engineers more broadly um, you know one of my one of my daughters has decided that you know she'd like to learn how to program which is great so uh, uh, I've been helping her with that and it's just a great time to be alive she um, she's been working with a a Raspberry Pi computer, which costs about $50. Um, She's helped me connect that up to the controller that we have to put our blinds up and down in our house. And we've together written some software to automate the blinds going up and down. And there's libraries available to check when sunrise and the sunset is. There's libraries to check how much cloud cover there is. Uh, All kinds of wonderful things. We've built an interface to our Amazon Alexa in the kitchen so you can actually turn to the Amazon Alexa and say, you know, Alexa put the blinds down and then the blinds will go down. Wow. And you can you, you can literally grab all of these pieces and, and glue them together and build a really great product in, in almost no time. And I just think that's so exciting compared to, you know, when I was a kid, um, when I was writing software, I mean, those things, that, that sort of fabric didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly it was a lot more expensive and, and doing things like, you know, interfacing a computer to a remote control, um, you know, you would have had to do that you know, from, from the very fundamentals right up. You know, so a project that took her maybe a couple of weeks with a little bit of help probably would have taken me nine months. Wow. Um, and I just think I just think that's so true for software engineering, you know, broadly. Um is that it's just a great time to be alive. There's just so many tools and libraries and bits and pieces around now um, that make hard tasks easy. And so you know it's possible really for a few people in a garage who are bright. Um, you know, to set up a company and go and and go and change the world on a pretty level playing field um, when, you know, that just simply wasn't possible even 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds an exciting time. Any final thoughts before we finish our chat today?
1: Look, I, I just think in recapping our whole conversation, you know, I, I think every business today is becoming a data business and a software business at heart. And I think that the, the way we can accelerate forward as a country, as a, as a city here in Melbourne, is by just embracing that as a fundamental truth and really making sure we invest in keeping our data on behalf of our users and then invest in the right people and the right skills to work with that data so that we can really compete on a world stage because that's what everybody else is doing. You know, like the, the US, deeply, deeply gets that. Mm -hmm. Uh, China deeply, deeply gets that. And we spend a lot of time talking about sort of being the smart country. Um, But I think that the thing that we really need to invest in is making sure that we have smart people working with our data to build great products.
0: Hugh, thanks, that's been really interesting insight into your world and and the world of data analytics.
1: No worries, thank you, Jan, it's fun.
0: For more information on data analytics, visit our website at mbs.edu.